1: fire, stirring something new. You're not going to run out of miracles anytime soon. Resurrection power runs in my veins too. Make a dead man walk again Moving Better than you, there's nothing. Nothing is better than you. And I'm not afraid to show you my weakness, my failures and flaws, Lord seen them all, and you still call me friend, cause the God of the mountain is the God of the valley there's not a place your mercy and grace will find me again.
2: What makes me angry, Um, what makes me angry, I I think, is people forgetting. People forgetting the moment in which they really came to know Jesus. I I think people have those moments um, and come to Jesus on fire um, and then then forget where Jesus brought them from, forget um, the radical um, grace that they receive and, then don't, and then, then don't apply that grace to, to someone else's life. Um, what do we do to, to remember so that we can remember the body? We need to stay in touch with those who are struggling, those who are poor, those who are outcasted. Our lives don't need to be um, lived within the walls of a church. Um, our lives need to be lived out in culture, and out in community. Um, loving people and getting to know people uh, and in that mix we will we won't forget well, I mean, the, Jesus said the harvest is plentiful but the laborers are few you stay a laborer by staying involved in your community you stay a laborer by by continuing to be a part of the culture around you as opposed to getting out of it um, and um, sitting inside the walls of the church and seeing that as your primary um, your primary objective. The way, the way I serve God the most is by going to church each Sunday. I would probably flip that. That's probably the, the least you can do is, is, to, is to go to church on Sunday.
0: Living Word, it's great to be back with you again. It's been a number of years, but Pastor James and I, we've kept contact. And hey, let me say something good about your pastor. That's all right to do, right? I'm allowed. Uh, pastor James and I have been friends for a long time. Uh, I have admired and am grateful for his leadership. And if I could describe him just a few words, it would it would be this. He loves God. He loves his community and he loves you. And And that would be enough. Well, it's been quite a year, hasn't it? I mean, Pastor James and I talked about my visit to Living Word and I suggested to him maybe I should say something about the, the ties to the elections, you know, preparing us for this next season. And, and, and last week I wrote an article in convert, to Convert Churches based on 1 Peter chapters 1 through 3. And I gave four reminders that win or lose, we were called to demonstrate the character of Christ. And chapter 1 verse 13 says, to be holy as he is holy. Win or lose, we're to treat other people with dignity, to love one another deeply from the heart. Win or lose, we are called to do good, to live such good lives among the people of the world that they see our good deeds and they glorify God. And win or lose, we are to put our hope in Christ and in the gospel, not in politics. To set our hope completely on the grace to be brought to us when Jesus comes back. And all those things are good, but, and I hope you'll do those things, but all those things are a response to present circumstances. And as I thought about it, I I want to challenge you to, to think more, to do more, to think way beyond this moment. I mean, after all, there's something bigger going on these days than American politics, don't you agree? There's something more powerful than the White House. You know what it is? It's God's house. It's the church. It's the people of God doing the work of God for the glory of God. It's us living out the priorities of God and the character of Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit. I mean, presidents come and go, but the word of God and the will of God for his church To help people meet and know and follow Jesus. Those things and those people they last forever. So so I thought I would uh, do uh, is take us to a familiar passage in Romans chapter 1. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn there. Uh, Paul's writing to the church in Rome and Rome's the capital of the Roman Empire. That makes sense. It's also the seat of government and political power. It's where the emperor lived. But the gospel has also come to that city and the church is starting to flourish. Now, remember that Christianity is illegal at this time, in this place. And yet, wherever the gospel goes, it, it triumphs. So Paul writes them letters, says, I'm coming soon. But in the meantime, I want to remind you that this faith of yours, well, it's powerful and it's, and it's beautiful. And he, he tells them to live by faith and not by fear. We really need to hear that these days, don't we? So let's pick up in Romans chapter 1, verse 8. And let me just read it to you. It says this. I do not want to be, you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. This is kind of our starting passage, and Paul expresses three things here. First, thankfulness. Thankfulness for living out the gospel. In fact, he says that this church in Rome has been a model in their faith under persecution. It's exemplary, It's it's something that's giving courage to other Christians around the world. Wouldn't that be encouraging if Living Word was that kind of church? Second, he offers a prayer for their continued walk with Jesus. In fact, he says he's been praying for them without ceasing. I mean, let me ask you a question. How would it make you feel to know that somebody somewhere is praying for you day in and day out? That's just just powerful. And finally, Paul says that he has a, a longing, a longing to see God in action in their lives. He hopes to come be with them and live among them and and train them. He wants to share stories of God's power and encourage them and to remind them that we are doing this work side by side, shoulder by shoulder, making a difference around the world. If I had to make a comment about what the church today in the midst of COVID, I'd say this is the hardest part of this season, the lack of connection. The, the lack of life on life, consistently challenging one another one to grow in Christ, to keep moving forward in our faith. But I love the heart of Paul to encourage, empower, and equip, and he wants to go and be with these people. And that's what we need in, in 2020. <laughs> we've hit what I call the trifecta this year. We've had a health pandemic, we've had a racial tension pandemic, and we're having a political pandemic. And, and we're all tired, aren't we? I mean, I've got decision fatigue, Zoom fatigue, crisis fatigue, Political fatigue. And to make it through, I personally have adopted some verses in Romans chapter 12, verse 11, where it says this Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. And he says this Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. But how do we do that? How do we sustain our passion in the midst of our problems? How do we keep our fervor in the feverish pace of today? In the next few verses, Paul shares three mindsets, three mindsets that move him forward, three perspectives that propel him, three thoughts that thrust him forward in life. And my hope is that these same three will help you and me in our lives in this season. So let's take a look. Romans chapter 1, verse 14, Paul says this, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So if you're writing notes down, mindset number one, I am obligated to all. I'm obligated to all. In this verse, we see that Paul uses what's called a dual classification. He talks about Greeks and barbarians. He talks about wise and foolish. It was common in that time to view people as either this or that, in or out, friend or foe. So in the Bible, you see people distinguished as Jew or Gentile, Roman or pagan, Greek or barbarian wise or foolish, slave or free, even men or women. The the, the Romans were part of the Greek culture. That's why I was talking about Greeks here, even though they're in Rome. The Greeks were the world power before Rome, and a lot of their culture transferred over into this new leadership. So being labeled Greek was not bad, but barbarian was very, very bad. See, people at that time, they had what they call a cancel culture. I'm sure you've never heard that term before. Uh, if you were the other group, I could dismiss you. I could ignore you. Uh, can you imagine a society that would actually do that kind of thing? It's so unhealthy. <laughs> we do the same thing all the time, don't we? In our day, it would be Republicans versus Democrats, rich versus poor, employed versus unemployed, masked versus no mask. We place judgments and the divide fellowship and spread hate the same way that they did back then. Let me just say this. It is Unchristian, ungodly, because it ignores the innate value and dignity of all human beings who are made in the image of God. Everyone matters to God, they should matter to us. What Paul's saying in this verse is that those categorizations don't matter with God or the gospel. He says he's obligated to all. Now, obligated is also the word indebted, which means he owes them, not because of what they did, but because of what Jesus did for him. So Paul's story of discovering Christ is found in Acts chapter 9. You don't have to turn there. But he's been persecuting the church, throwing Christians in jail. He's even part of the stoning of Stephen. And he could not have been more angry or against the gospel. But he meets Christ in a miraculous experience. He experiences forgiveness of sin and grace for his actions. And his life goes a completely different trajectory. Rather than fear, jealousy, angst, and rules, he has faith and joy, and contentment, and relationship. He's never experienced anything like this, and it compels him to share the good news with others. He feels indebted to God from whom he got his trust, but also indebted to people for whom he got it. He feels a universal obligation to all people and all peoples. So in the 19th century, 150 years ago, there's a guy named Alexander McLaren who was a Scottish Baptist theologian. He's writing about this sense of obligation and I I love the fact that he writes this 150 plus years ago because it sounds like he can write it to us in our situation today. Here's what he says. He says, the Apostle Paul points to two of the widest gulfs that separate men. Greeks and barbarians divides mankind according to race and language. Wise and unwise divides them according to culture and intellectual capacity. Both gulfs still exist, though they have been wonderfully filled up by the influence, direct and indirect, of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel goes across all barriers. The fiercest antagonisms of race, which still subsist, are felt to belong to the decaying order, and to be sure, sooner or later, to pass away. And that oneness, which makes us debtors to all men, is shown to be real by the fact that beneath all superficial distinctions of culture, Race, age, station, there are the primal necessities and yearnings and possibilities that lie in every human soul. The gospel can break every barrier, he says. All men, savage or cultivated, breathe the same air, see by the same light, are fed by the same food and drink, have the same yearning hearts, the same lofty aspirations that unfulfilled or torture the same experience of the same guilt, and blessed be God, the same Savior, and the same salvation. Because then we are all members of one family. Every man, every person bound to regard all that he possesses and is and can do as committed to him in stewardship from God to be imparted to his fellows. I love that statement. Paul says we're all indebted to God. We've received forgiveness, grace, life and truth. Listen, as a stewardship, that means as a responsibility. Think about this for a minute. Psalm 24 verse 1 says, the earth is the Lord's and everything it contains, the whole world and all who live in it. See, we think I've, I've worked hard to get where I am and what I have, but, but James chapter 1 verse 17 says this, that every good and perfect gift is from above. That God is the provider, the source of all things. And everything we have in this life is a stewardship. We're we're, we're managers. We have nothing to boast about in and of ourselves. We're just beggars telling other beggars where we found bread. And everything we are, everything we have, everything we do belongs to God. What we think we own is really just on loan. Even our breath is borrowed. And how we live our lives in this stewardship matters. What we do with our time, talent, treasure, touch, thoughts, we do as managers who must give an account to God. And the Bible says that these things, that here's some things we manage, we are ambassadors for Christ's sake. For Romans 14 verse 7 says this, that not one of us lives for ourselves, not one of us dies for ourselves. If we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. Matthew 28, verse 18 through 20 remind us we've been commanded and commissioned to take the gospel to all the nations. This is an obligation. This is not an option. We are obligated to God, but we're also obligated to people and not just the ones we like and not the ones that look like us, think like us, speak like us, live like us, vote like us. He says regardless of color, culture, class, or creed, we are obligated. Regardless of political party or theology, regardless of AFC, NFC, National League, American League, Pac-12, Big 12, coffee or tea, Coke or Pepsi, country music lover or normal person, you're welcome, we are obligated to take the gospel to everyone. Let me tell you a story. So years ago, when I was at Sun Valley, we started growing and we were about 200 people and then we got to 400, we built a building. And within a year, it took us a long time to get to 400, but within a year we went to 1,000. And then we started building buildings and doing other things and, and people were getting upset because you know, when you go from a small church to a large church, you don't know everybody, you don't know everything anymore. And, and people would come to me and say, okay, isn't this big enough? Can't we just stop now? But if you know, during that time, Gilbert was growing. In fact, it went from 30,000 people when we moved there to 240,000 people when we left. And we had to make room for new people who were coming to Christ. I remember one friend who just came to me and said, when are you going to be satisfied? He thought it was all about my ego, all about what, what I, you know, what I wanted. How, how big is big enough is what he, what he asked me. And I said, that's, that's just the wrong question. It's just the wrong question. Here, here's the right question. What zip code are we going to leave out? What zip code are we going to say, you can go to hell because we're not going to reach you? And that kind of shook him up, and he's like, okay, I, I realize what I'm doing. Listen, we are obligated until every man, woman, and child, every tongue, tribe, and nation, every butcher and baker and candlestick maker, to give them an opportunity to hear the gospel of Jesus. We are obligated to all. and We'll never stop until it's done. Verse 15 says this, So I'm eager, Paul says, So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. We're obligated to all. Second mindset, if you're writing notes, eager for many. We're eager for many, see here Paul connects the the mind in verse fourteen to the heart in verse fifteen, intellect to emotion, responsibility to privilege, accountability to passion. Paul has Rome on his radar earlier in verse thirteen. he tells us why he's so excited to be in Rome. He says this, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. Now I love. I love to see life changes, what Paul is is saying here. He couldn't wait to be with them. He talks about being among you, and that's discipleship of the church. And he also said among the rest of the Gentiles, which was evangelism. He was excited about both. Paul's heart for this group drove him forward. So, So here's my question for you. What group drives you? You know, for, for me, it's my, my neighborhood. I have the most amazing group of people who live around me. Orlando is a very multicultural place, and I have neighbors from all over the world. My next-door neighbors are from the Dominican Republic and Mexico. My back-door neighbors are from Peru. On the cul-de-sac, there are couples from Iceland and Brazil and across the street from Iran and Myanmar. Uh, they're all very, very different people from very different cultures, but they all have the same issues several are raising kids, a few are empty nesters like Lisa and I, and all are trying to figure out life in a new place and a new season. And I work hard to meet and know and connect with them because I, don't, I, I, need, to, I need to connect with people who, who aren't like me, who are non-believers. See, I work for a Christian organization, and like most church staffs, my staff all follow Jesus. At least I think they do. So that it's not really an option as a mission field for me, maybe like some of your workplaces could be. Because of that, I have a hard time connecting with non-Christians at work because they just don't walk into the building. But I, I love that part of ministry. And so I've found elsewhere, other ways to, to do that. We're empty nesters, so we can't lean into our kids' connections. And so, and I'm too cheap to join a gym. I, and COVID on top of that, but I gotta tell you, I'm, I'm eager and I'm finding ways to connect with my neighbors. When I talk to ordinary people about helping people meet, know, and follow Jesus, I talk about their spheres of influence. Here are your spheres, your relatives, your neighbors, your co-workers, your friends, your classmates, your teachers, your coaches, your, your the people that at the gym that work with you. So in my scenario, I've got all this in my neighbors. It's the only one I've got. So I've got to be serious about them. How about you? You realize that God has perfectly positioned you to reach somebody with the gospel, that someone around you doesn't know Jesus and you need to reach them with that? Now, when I talk to churches and church leaders, their scope needs to be wider than the individual scope. Churches need to think in three uh, three circles, here, near, and far. Here, near, and far. First, they need to have a saturation strategy to figure out how to reach their entire community, their entire town, city, or county, with the gospel of Jesus. I have pastors in different places around the country that show that. I have one guy in Indianapolis, he says, I've got Indy. I have one in Iowa, he says, I've got Iowa. I've got one who's got bigger dreams says, I've got Texas. And then Jesse Padilla, my buddy, he says, I've got the whole Spanish speaking world. Okay? I mean, here's the question. Who's got Oracle? Who's got your town? Who's got where you live? Who's got your neighborhood? Who's got your workplace? We've got to own here. God has perfectly positioned us. And then there's, there's near. And I'm talking about the region, not just your community, but the region around you. And this kind of thinking, it has to involve partnerships. We can't do that kind of stuff alone. So in 1998, there were three small churches in the East Valley of Phoenix. that came together and said, you know what? We'd probably be better together than we are apart. And one church, mine was 200, another one was 400, another one was 700, and we said, you know what? We could, we could actually do something. And so we started talking about starting new churches. We started to work together. We started sharing our best practices, trusting each other, using our gifts, trying to plant new churches. We had a dream of reaching all of Arizona with the gospel, so we called our group Vision Arizona. Can I admit something to you? We had no idea, no idea what we were doing, but we were eager. We had this vision, and we we had each other. Now, the funny thing happened is we started new churches and planting and things like that. We began sharing our best ideas, our best practices, our sermons, our staff, even our our, uh, other things in our lives with each other. And instead of just starting churches, our churches began to grow as well. These three churches of 200, 400, and 700, you may know some of them Sun Valley Community Church, where I was at, Cornerstone Christian Fellowship, and Mission Church in, in Gilbert. They now started over 30 churches in the area and have influenced hundreds of thousands of people with the gospel, and they've grown themselves like crazy. In fact, now there's a Vision Tucson, Vision Yuma, Vision Texas, Vision Southern Cal, because those small churches had a dream 22 years ago to reach those who were near. Here, near, and then finally, far. So, in my, in my office, I have this picture on my wall over my couch. It's a, it's a night scene of a tribal dance in Papua New Guinea, one of the farthest reaches of the world. It's a very remote tribe called the Mibu tribe. In fact, they're so remote, there's still no road to get to their village. The best way there is, is helicopter. They, they spoke, but they had no written language. They were completely disconnected from the modern world, no electricity. You See, 30 years ago, the Mibu had never even heard the gospel of Jesus. They worshiped idols. They believed in many different gods. Now, the dance they were doing was called the Kong Gap Dance, or it means spirit dance. They danced to ask the spirits to prosper them, to give them rain and and they lived in complete ignorance of God's power and God's love. That is until a small group of people had a heart for them and two couples actually decided to take their families, including their kids, to live among them. They learned their language, created an alphabet, translated the gospel and shared it with them. Today, almost the entire tribe knows Jesus. They've burned their idols, they've worshiped the one true God, they still dance but they dance to the to enjoy to the God's power and God's forgiveness, the one true God. Their headdresses used to be full of their idols, but now they're full of Bible pictures like Jonah and the whale, the snake on the pole, the cross. And now they're trying to reach other villages around them with the gospel, all because someone went far to reach them. Let me ask you, what does living words reach? It should be here, near, and far. And there should be an eagerness from all of us to help many people meet Know and follow Jesus. We're obligated to all, we're eager for many. Romans one sixteen, last part. He says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everybody who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Obligated to all, eager for many. Third one is this, third mindset, convinced of one. That word ashamed is mentioned in Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16. It's also uh, mentioned in Romans 9.33. It says this, so this is what the sovereign Lord says, see, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone. We, we know this is Jesus for a sure foundation. And it says this, the one who relies on it, on him will not be put to shame. To be ashamed means to hesitate. It means to shy away. It means to be embarrassed or confused. It's, it's saying that we should not be ashamed of what we believe or who we believe in. See, Paul's making this point because of the obstacles that we all face in society with the gospel. In Paul, Paul's case, he had this dichotomy between himself and Rome. Rome was sophisticated, but Paul was simple. Rome was Gentile, but Paul was Jewish. Rome was thought to be a center of wisdom, and were thought to be, Christians were thought to be fools. Even the message of Jesus, the message of the gospel, a carpenter from a remote village who's crucified as a criminal, being the Savior. I mean, Rome was the place of kings, so you see all the barriers there. Yet despite this, Paul was not ashamed. He was absolutely convinced that Jesus died, was buried, and raised from the dead. He knew Jesus had the power to forgive sin, and it didn't matter, just like today, it didn't matter what you've done, where you've been, what, what's been done to you. Jesus Christ can meet you where you are, and he can provide forgiveness for your past, power for your presence, and hope for the future. Listen, Jesus is who he says he is, and he can do what he says he can do, even in your life today. So say yes to Jesus. Paul was not ashamed to profess and proclaim the good news of Jesus. You see, these other motivations are good. The ones we talked about, responsibility, obligation, stewardship, eagerness, passion, all those things are good. But conviction, conviction drives me to my core. So there's a theologian, his name was Kaufman. He, he talks about Paul's relationship with the, church, with the, with the society at his time and, and what they thought of him. He says, The Jews cast him off and regarded him as apostate. He wasn't believing what they believed. And by the wise among the Gentiles, he had been persecuted and despised and driven from place to place and regarded as the filth of the world, the offscouring of all things. But still he was not ashamed of the gospel. He had so firm a conviction of its value and its truth. See, our convictions are those things that we believe in in our core, in our center. I mean, picture three concentric circles. And the outside circle will be all the things that you and I discuss. Think about the word discuss. Things we could It could be just about anything. The next circle is the inner circle of defend. These are things that we would hold to. Things that, like our political views, our favorite sports team how we need to spend our money, how we raise our kids, that kind of stuff. But the very inner circle, the bullseye, that's the things we would die for. The things we would die for. Now, there's very few things that fit in that circle. Family and, and our faith in the gospel. And this center core is what drives us in everything that we do. It's our conviction. See, here, here's what Christians, let me just give you a little primer. Here's what Christians believe. First, we believe that the Bible... The Bible is the word of God. Let me give you three words for that. Inspiration, inerrancy, and canis- canonicity. Inspiration means we believe that God is the source of the Bible. Uh, inerrancy means that God, the, the Bible itself is full of truth. It's, it's God's word. Canonicity is all about authority. It's the authority of our lives. We, we live under the authority of the Bible. When my decisions and my opinions are contrary to what the Bible teaches, I choose to believe the Bible. When my emotions are out there, I choose to have faith and not fear. We also believe in the Trinity, that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, they're all one. We believe that Jesus came to die, came to earth, He died for our sin, He was resurrected to life. We believe John fourteen six is true, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through Him. We believe what Peter said in Acts 4, verse 12, that says there's salvation in no one else, there's no other name under heaven among men by which we must be saved. Paul understood the power of the gospel. He also understood the extreme love of God. In his travels, he had seen people from every color, class, and culture come to Christ. He believed the gospel was unstoppable, uncontainable, undefeatable, invincible, indomitable, irresistible. In Romans chapter 10 verse 13, he wrote this, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But but then he says this, how then can they call on the one they've not believed in? And how can they believe in the one they've not heard about? And how can they hear if someone doesn't preach to them? And he reoriented his whole life to make sure the people everywhere could meet and know and follow Jesus. His conviction drove his action. He was obligated to all, eager for many, convinced, convinced of one. This is why, regardless of who was in power, the challenges of his circumstance, or the weight of his troubles, Paul kept his spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. And through through the years, every generation has had Christians who are led by faith, not fear, conviction, not convenience, hope, not despair. Because they knew that God is bigger than any foe we face in this age. And that the gospel is more powerful than any obstacle they might have to overcome. So what about you? What are you convinced of? How is it that this impacting your life? So about six years ago, God was doing a stirring in my life. I'd been at Sun Valley and uh, Gilbert for about 21 years. Ministry was going great. I mean, it was never better. But there was a sense in God stirring in me to trust him for more, to obey these three mandates. Obligated to all, eager for many, convinced of one. And I made a decision, my family made a decision to to leave after 21 years in one place. I mean, this is the place that all my kids grew up. This is the place my kids were born. This is the place they graduated from high school. My my closest friends were there. My best relationships were there. And I've been asked time and time again, why would you do that? Why why would you leave this life? You've got everything, everything you ever wanted. Your life is set. You've led a church from 200 to 5,000, from one campus to three campuses, and now it's six campuses. You've planted lots of churches. You've helped lots of people. You've done enough. And the only answer I could give is this. I, I don't want my greatest days of faith to be something I did 21 years ago. I want to trust God more today than ever before. How about you? I'm convinced that if I do this, that more people will meet and know and follow Jesus. I'm convinced of the power of the gospel for salvation to everyone who believes. I believe it can cross every barrier, bridge any gap, fill any void, break any chain. The gospel can restore the broken, lift the fallen, heal the hurting, raise the dead to life. And it's available to everyone, regardless of language or lifestyle, location, background, bank account. Yes, it has a Jewish beginning, but it has a multi-ethnic, multicultural, multinational future. Because one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. People from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation will worship around the throne of God. But until then, we have work to do. And the only limitation on the gospel is us. The question is, will we get the gospel to them? Will we? Can we? So soon after I took this job, I was commuting between Orlando and Florida. Can you imagine that? Every, every Sunday, I'm, I'm flying out uh, to Orlando, and every Thursday, I'm flying back. It's a four-hour flight. I did this for eight straight months. It was exhausting. And, and I was growing weary like everyone else. I had those days where I, I don't feel like being on my game. I don't feel like you know, being the, the evangelistic Christian. So I have to confess, I was getting on the plane. I was heading back home. And I, was, I was tired. And, and I didn't want to talk to anybody. And I found a window seat, and I pretended to be asleep. Sorry, confession, uh, in hopes that no one would talk to me. And uh, so I, I fell asleep. I actually fell asleep, and I woke up, and my tray table was was down, and there was a there was a cup on my tray table. I'm thinking, can you believe that the person beside me actually put their drink on my table because because hers was up. But then I realized, I said, well, I wonder. And I turned to her and said, Is is that for me? I mean, rather than being angry about them, you know, taking over my space, I say, is that for me? And and she looked at me, and she said, yes, Pastor Scott. It was, it was like, do I know you? And she said, no. She said, but I know you. I know. And she told me the most beautiful story about how her husband, she and her husband had come to Sun Valley. They'd come to Christ in our ministry. they were they just gotten baptized and um, they were in a small group. They were growing in their faith. And she looked at me, and she said, you saved my life. (laughs) Now, I didn't save it. Jesus saved it, but isn't it a great thing? Isn't it a great thing that God uses you to to transfer someone from, from darkness to light, from death to life, from an eternity away from God to eternity with God? Listen, there's nothing like the gospel. There's no one like Jesus, and we have the responsibility and the privilege to be a part of the greatest mission in the world to help people meet and know And follow Jesus. So our circumstances don't matter. Who's in the White House doesn't matter. We are the church. The church is not a building you sit in. It's a movement you choose to be a part of. We are obligated to all. We are eager for many. We're convinced of one. So let's get this done. Will you pray with me? Jesus, your name is above all names. And at your name, every knee will bow in heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue will one day confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. And when we're about these things, we're about helping people meet, know, and follow Jesus, we're at our best, doing what we're designed to do, fulfilling the great commission that God gave to his church. You are most honored when we are most surrendered, and so we surrender ourselves to you. You are most magnified when we are on mission, so we join you those things. We are obligated to all, eager for many, convinced of one. Help us have the wisdom to know the right things to do and the courage to do it. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.
1: This has been a message from Living
0: Word Chapel. We hope that you've been blessed by it make sure you check out
2: lwcoracle.org for more information.